So we're in that continued discussion. The two southern tribes of Judah have watched the ten northern tribes known as Israel rebel against the Lord, be involved in idolatry. They never once had a godly king in the north. Once the civil war took place and separation happened, all ten of the northern tribes, you know, they have sort of variations of leaning towards the Lord, but they, they continue worshiping the golden calves. They never abolish that, you know, as a separated nation. They never return to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. And eventually, everything that the prophets have said to them and warned them comes true, and they're captured by the Assyrians and taken away as slaves. Now, the two southern tribes remain known as Judah, and here Isaiah is ministering to them, speaking to them, warning them, telling them what is going to transpire. And we started that discussion with especially chapter 32 uh, last week, where the prophet is telling them that they should not rely upon Egypt, that the Assyrians are coming and the people of Israel have allowed their fear to turn their hearts away from the Lord. And they're looking at Egypt's uh, military capabilities as being the source of their salvation. And God has a great rebuke for them in that, that, uh, you know, there's that dual sin or the two part sin. One is, uh, that they are embracing Egypt for salvation, but by doing that, they're simultaneously rejecting God as even being capable of saving them. So he has you know, a great deal to say about that, and then he shifts at the end of chapter 32, or midway through, and begins to talk about the salvation that he's going to deliver, that he's going to give to Judah, and that the, the king that he's going to, uh, to give them the righteous king whose heart is towards the Lord. And we talked about the fact that really um, you're looking at uh, Hezekiah probably being that king that was you know, specifically being referred to on earth. But that is Hezekiah serves as an image or a type of Jesus who was eventually going to come and be the salvation for all of humanity. And, and ultimately in Hezekiah, it's Jesus at work his spirit, bringing that man to them as a source of salvation. God's going to handle their salvation specifically and alone. There isn't going to be any human involvement. Uh, there's going to be one angel that goes through the Assyrian camp and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Uh, they're going to wake up the next morning, and there's just going to be a massive surrounding all the way around the city of Jerusalem uh, of corpses. And there's some description to that end here. So uh, he's got some things to say as we look at chapter 33 to Assyria, to their army, to their leaders, uh, to the nation of uh, Judah, to, to the king, and to the people in chapter 33. He starts here talking about, you know, woe to uh, plundering Assyria. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, you who deal treacherously, though you have not dealt treacherously—excuse uh, me, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. So that statement, "Woe you who plunder," God's saying, you know, regardless of how impossible it seems he's going to stop this impossible army in its tracks you know will be plundered and will be dealt with treacherously they're they're all going to be dead and the people of israel are going to go out they've been starving to death the, the situation has gotten so tragic inside jerusalem when this takes place that they've actually resorted to cannibalism inside the city walls it's as unthinkable as you can imagine. The next day, the entire Assyrian army is dead, and they go out and just collect all of the food and the stores and the wealth from the Assyrian army. And it's so abundant that you know flour and wheat and grain are selling for incredibly cheap prices. 
It isn't even as though, you know, they go out there and get the things they need from the dead Assyrian army. And, you know, there's enough for everybody to sort of have a little bit. It's it's an abundance. They're, they're left with, you know, a massive cash store of goods and ware, wealth and food uh, in the process. So the idea of, you know, everything you're doing to other people is going to come to you and it's going to come abruptly and suddenly and cataclysmically and there's nothing that you can do about it. You know, it's it's hard to tell somebody that when they are in the midst of enjoying themselves and just falling down the line that they want and they desire and you can see their tragic end approaching, tell them all you want. You know, they, they're not going to hear you unless the Holy Spirit says something. You have to say something, right? Here's the prophet Isaiah saying to them, this is coming for you. You have to be obedient to the Lord and say something. But in the end, more often than not, they don't listen. Now, uh, they will be treacherous. They will deal treacherously with you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. We've heard it quoted many times. It says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This this culture has you know you know turned to this point where everything has to be politically correct, and we we have an attitude in our society about toleration that everybody has to be tolerant of one another, and you know we hear this quoted or sometimes even shouted, you know, judge not or you know you know stop the haters sort of attitude. It, it it's really lame, you know. There's a term that you know, I like attaching to that whole mindset, and it's called snowflake. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this has become such a weak culture. You can't throw somebody a passing glance without them misinterpreting what's going on in your heart and mind. Everybody's walking around, me, me, me. You know, oh, he looked at me strange. She looked at me funny. You know, I think that comment was about me. You know, what happened to, you know, sticks and stones, maybe break my bones, words will never hurt me. Where where did that go? You know, judge not, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, judge not that you be not judged. This is literally about, uh, like, not just using discernment. This is about physically judging a thing you know this is an easy sermon for me to preach on wednesday nights in the jail you know when i'm talking to the guys and i say to them each one of you has you know you either had judgment passed upon you or you're awaiting judgment to be passed upon you where you receive your sentence that's what we're talking about you know saying that a thing is a certain way this is literally you know, bringing physical punishment is the idea. That's the judgment that's being spoken of. This isn't saying of a thing. Uh, you know, uh, the, later in the chapter, he talks about false teachers, uh, Matthew chapter 7, and says you'll know them by their fruit. You know, so when you say of a false teacher, that's a false teacher. You know, they'll often cry, you know, judge not. Jesus is telling us to to use our discernment to say, by based upon the fruits of your life, I can say you're a false teacher. Now, if you're some psychopath and you say you're a false teacher, I hate false teachers, and you pull your gun out and shoot them dead, that's the judgment Jesus is talking about not using, not passing judgment upon them. He's not saying don't use discernment to say to someone what you're doing is sin. <laughs> the world screams, judge not. That's, that's not what we're talking about at all. Uh, this, this destroys people when we don't use discernment. Oh, I'm just going to be tolerant. And the reason, the biggest reason people do this, the most frequent reason people do this is they don't want anyone calling them out for their sin 
so you know they look at somebody else engaged in their sin and they're not going to say no matter how heinous a crime that may be they're not going to say anything about that because they got their own skeletons in their closet so if i don't say anything about you then i'll be justified in my practice no no nobody gets away with it you know pa you know passing an approval upon somebody doesn't make it such that everyone you know, it doesn't matter if we all gather together. Okay, what are we? You're probably you know, like some giant AA meeting. Hi, I'm Will. You know, I'm a thief. Hi, you know, I'm Bob. I'm a murderer. And we're all just going to go, okay, you know, I mean, murder's bad, but I want to continue to be a thief. So let's just not judge one another. It doesn't matter how much we sit around and give approval, lend approval to one another. We're all going to stand before God someday. And he's going to literally pass judgment upon us. This whole grand scheme of, of human tolerance and human approval, it doesn't amount to, as my grandmother used to say, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It doesn't mean anything. This, this judgment, you know, this idea, they've been treacherous. And God is saying, this is, this is a spiritual law. It's not instant karma. I hate that term. This is a spiritual law derived from the scripture. Sowing and reaping, right? You've been treacherous. Treachery is coming for you. You've lived by the sword. The sword is coming for you. This is what they're experiencing. So God has every right to deal with us as, he has, as we've dealt with others. If we've been that way, and it comes around to us, that's his prerogative. 33 verse 2. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. So there's some things here, this you know statement, be gracious to us. The people now begin to turn to God to look for help and deliverance. The reason is the siege has become so severe the army surrounds them so thoroughly that Egypt isn't coming. And they begin to realize we're on our own. We have no hope except for God. You know, uh, people will reveal their hearts sometimes where the tragedy collapses upon them and they'll, they'll say outright, well, all we can do now is pray. That's all you can do all along the way. It isn't because you've come to the moment of cataclysm and now, you know, the only hope is God. The only hope was God all along the way. You've just come to the realization that no other hope is coming for you. You know, you had your plan. We had our scheme. We were trying to devise how we were going to deal with the circumstances and it all just sort of evaporated in front of us. And we go, well, all we can do now is pray. If God was going to use one of those circumstances previously to deliver us from our circumstance, it would have been God. Not, you know, the circumstance. You know, if God was going to use the Egyptians, that would have been God. Not the Egyptians answering their circumstance or answering their problems. Now they're beginning to call out and ask God, for, oh, be gracious to us. That's a wonderful thing when you come to that point. Uh, you know, we've waited for you. Be their arm. We've waited for you, they say. And then the prophet says, be their arm every morning. You know, uh, Jeremiah will later say, uh, cursed is man who makes flesh his arm and his heart departs from the Lord. You know, cursed is the man who makes man his strength other translations say and his heart departs from the lord you know this this statement this idea be their arm every morning 
the strength that we're going to have starting the day in the Word of God, starting the day in prayer, starting the day in fellowship with the Lord. Be our strength. The thing that's going to carry me through the day, the thing that's going to you know, be my insight, be my thought, show me what I need to see. When we start our day that way, it changes everything. When when we and I'm not talking about just oh you know hold the Bible open and you know read the few verses and rush out the door. So sometimes that's helpful. I'm talking about surrendering the first of our day in such a way that we're seeking God, asking Him to speak to us, wanting to know His presence. Having him in our lives that as we move along, we can see this is the strength that's carrying me through this day. This is the strength that is providing me the answers and making my provision and showing me the path I need to take. When we'll do that, you know, when he'll be our strength every morning, it makes a great change in what we're doing. It makes a great change in what our outlook is. He says there in that section, when you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. God's people have confidence that when God rises up, there will be no resisting. He's going to be utterly victorious in the circumstance. When God's people start their day, start into their situation with the idea that God is going to take care of it, that God is going to see me through this it makes a great difference when the water is so muddy that we can't see that isn't that just an absolute heartbreak when you're when you're in the place where you're sort of digging and clawing your way along and you're wishing and hoping for that clarity of where is god in my circumstance where is god in everything that i'm dealing with when the answer finally comes through and you hear Somehow in your heart, your mind, your life, your circumstances, oh, God is actually with me. God is going to see me through this. You know, when, when, when our heart is in a place of doubt, regardless of what our past has been, certain circumstances unfold, and we're just like, I got no idea how this is going to turn out. I've got no idea what my circumstances are going to result in. When we begin to see even the faintest glimpse that God is there, that he's carrying us, that he is the same in our present circumstances, he's been, oh, everything changes. There's an old statement that you can live 40 days without food. And that is the truth of the matter. You get to the 40-day mark and your body literally starts to digest itself. Okay, and I'm not talking about fat stores that I certainly could get rid of. I'm talking about like it, be, it begins with your kidneys and quickly moves to your liver and it'll eventually start digesting. And I'm, I'm talking in a matter of hours. It'll start digesting your heart muscle, your muscle tissue. Your body literally begins to digest itself. There's nothing else. When you reach 0% body fat, body goes, okay, and we're shutting down, and it just begins to digest itself. When Jesus reached 40 days... Of fasting, the power of hunger is beyond imagination. You know, if you've gone without food for you know hours or days of fasting, you know what hunger is like. You know, forty days that'll bring you to a whole different place. You can go forty days without food. You can go roughly three days without water, you know, depending on your circumstances. Your body will dehydrate. You'll get very sick and die without water you know on average uh, you can go about two minutes without oxygen you're not going to survive a single second without hope when people lose hope then everything's lost you know we we've seen this many times in uh, testimonies of people who were prisoners of war the faintest of hope would cause them to hang on through the worst circumstances. In regard to this, there was a study done a number of years ago. Wall-eyed pike, very aggressive predatory fish. They will eat uh, minnows until 
they just about pop. And uh, they're extremely aggressive about it. They will come out of the water after them. They just, they're ravenous in their pursuit of smaller fish. You put walleye pike in a massive tank, and this was the experiment, and dump in a five-gallon pail full of minnows, and you got less than two minutes, and there are no minnows. They will just hammer everything right down. You put a sheet of plexiglass in that same tank, and you dump the minnows on one side of the plexiglass with the walleye pike on the other. And at first, that walleye pike will just batter himself to bits trying to get through that plexiglass and uh, scoop all the minnows out till there are no more. Take the plexi out and swim back and forth. Do it again. Plexi back in, walleye pike on one side, dump the minnows in. He'll try, but not as aggressively. And uh, take the minnows out, plexi out, let him swim the tank. Do this repeatedly. Eventually, you'll be able to dump the minnows right in with him. No exaggeration without the plexiglass there. The minnows will bounce right off his face. Bink! And swim away. And he won't do a blessed thing about it. He's lost hope. In his mind, it's an impossible task. He's tried with all of his strength and might to get to those minnows repeatedly and he his brain has been damaged not from battering the plexi from the experience of failure okay there's something to be said in that process but within this the realization that god is rising up on my behalf all of the darkness that was present all of the doubt all of the failure when you realize i'm on god's team God's on my team. Everything changes. Everything changes. It doesn't even have to be some brilliant victory in the moment. They haven't seen the Assyrians conquered yet. It's the realization of we have no hope, but the prophet has told us God is going to deliver us. When they come to that place, now they're saying God is going to rise up on our behalf and nothing can stop him. Look, Addiction is a thing that will create this in people's minds. The impossibility of hope. Why even try? I'm just going to fail again. Got to lend the hope that is in Christ to hearts and minds like that. Now they see it when you, know, you lift yourself up, the nations will be scattered. My circumstances will be scattered. They'll flee from me. He makes that statement like the gathering of caterpillars. It seems out of place. But the idea that when the Assyrian army is defeated, the caterpillars will gather around the dead bodies is what's being said. Uh, if you've ever seen those uh, films of, like, uh, remember the Ethiopians starving the refugees in the 80s, and, you know, they're just there, emaciated, thin, with their swollen bellies, and the flies on their face and around their eyes, and and you're thinking, like, I couldn't stand that. I'd go crazy if a fly was landing one. In the Middle East, flies commonly land on people's faces, and they don't get as wound up about it as we would because the the flies can actually recognize the, the moisture in your eye. And that's what they're, they're trying to get the water out of your eyeball. That's, that's why they go to the corner of the eye and try to get the, the caterpillars in the Middle East you leave anything decomposing, the moisture from that human body laying on the desert floor, the caterpillars come right to it. It's a gruesome thought. There's going to be 185,000 dead laying on the desert floor. This is a prediction on the part of God, the prophet, and the people of Judah that the caterpillars are going to gather around your dead corpses. That's pretty wild to think about. That they understand, oh, they as strange it is as it is, as gruesome a thought as that is, you guys, you got you really got to like make the translation here in that what is the thing that is currently overwhelming you that in your mind I am already defeated. 
I am surrounded with this problem and there is no hope. Understand the promise that's coming from God to your heart, your mind, your life, your circumstances from this passage right here that is telling you there will be a point where the things that gather around decomposition will be gathering around whatever your current problem is. You're going to be delivered from it. You know, this isn't some like, you know, word of faith message of just name it and claim it, brothers, you know. This is the idea of God speaking to our hearts and telling us you don't have to be enslaved to that. You don't have to be conquered by this. I can literally dispose of that like some dead thing that just needs to be dissolved by nature itself. God is capable of doing these things for us. In verse 5, it says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So this idea that God is exalted, again, this, this is a statement of faith. They haven't seen this come to pass yet. God is exalted. You know, as we sit here in a deteriorating nation that has rejected God, God is exalted. God is on his throne. He is high and lifted up beyond these things. You know, our, our culture can thumb their nose at God all they want. Right? We bow in reverential worship of God, and we will be justified, you know, which in the end, we are currently justified. In our, they will someday be ashamed of their rejection of God. You know, this issue of the right to life that's going on right now and the way our nation is struggling over this. It doesn't matter which side of that we come out on. God is still on the throne. God is still right. And those unborn children are lives. It doesn't matter how our culture defines it. And, and God will be justified in his judgment against the people who have done the great atrocity against human life, against the sanctity of life. The, the day of reckoning is coming. It's, it's a sure thing. Meet filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Not currently. As that statement is written and declared and the people hold to it, they're not seeing justice and righteousness at that present moment. They're declaring it positionally. God is just. He is righteous. He will bring these things about. What do you know the psalmists say? You know, why? Do the heathen rage? Why do the nations say these stupid things? God is, you know, he holds them in derision. He mocks them. He's going to judge them. The, the fact that these things are transpiring, the fact that the church is adrift, falling away from the Lord, the fact that there's so much corruption in our culture is an evidence that we're moving towards the finality of all things. You know, that it should cause us to take hope not to lose heart. You know, we see so many people that are, you know, falling and failing in the misery of sin and what our culture is coming to. That, that isn't where we should be. You know, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now, that is a thing. The, the scripture is saying, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Wisdom is is so profoundly Needed. It's such a desirable and a, such a desired thing. Whether people will admit that or not, or even have the understanding about the, the need for wisdom, you know, the desire for wisdom. I, I have a, a friend who um, he's uh, working in a company where, um, you know, they're asking him to do all kinds of things, and um, he's not been trained in regard to doing the things that he's being asked to do, but he's he's very um, uh, he's a very good student of God's word, 
And and so, the, you know, the things he's doing, he's doing according to God's word. And and so they're continuously advancing him, you know, and using him and blessing him. And, you know, we're having a discussion about that. And, and you know, he's, he said, it's it's almost like I'm cheating. You know, I mean, I'm surrounded by people who've been involved in business and know and do all this stuff. And I don't know any of that. I'm just taking God's word and applying it to, to what I'm, I'm doing for this company. And, and the Lord is blessing me and, you know, pushing me through these circumstances, you know, and as we were having the, the discussion about that, I said, yeah, and, and think of all the money you saved on tuition. And he just laughed because, you know, everybody around him, you know, has their master's degree in business and has, you know, this degree and that degree, and they're all paying off massive student loans. And he's not at all because he just got a humble heart. The treasure of the fear of the Lord. You know, we really have to take into account how valuable, literally in a monetary sense, that is in our lives, in a material way. The fear of the Lord produces in our lives. Well, you know, whether we ever turn around and look at some big fat bank account and go, look what God has created, or just the fact that we we haven't lost everything because of our sinfulness. Because through humility, we've followed God and been able to retain what God has provided for us. The humble life, you know, that, that we would have destroyed without that fear. These people are coming to that place. Oh, they wanted Egypt. They needed Egypt's military. They were in big, big trouble. They, they need, and oh, they were making all these negotiations and pleas, and that all falls apart right in their hand. And now the realization of how valuable God is to them. That's going to be so much more valuable when they wake up and the entire Egyptian army is wiped out. The, the Assyrian army. And they're able to go out and literally bring in the spoils, money and wealth and armor and weapons and, you know, all of these animals and sheep. And, you know, they're able to gather and glean from this army that's been destroyed right in their midst. It's a, it's a really huge blessing, the fear of the Lord, when we're in submission to him. In verse 7, surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassador of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the city. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruit. So, Kind of a, a complex section from 7 to 9. This statement, their valiant ones shall cry outside. The earth mourns in languages. When the judgment of the Lord comes to the earth, everyone's brought low before him. You think about uh, the book of Revelation and the judgments that God brings on the earth. And then it says, you know, everyone from small to great, the kings of the earth, hide themselves in the mountains, in the clefts of the rock, and they cry out and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb who has come. When God's judgment is come, be it this situation or in someone's life personally or ultimately when the whole earth is judged through God's presence, it's going to be a thing that everyone just wilts away from. You know, even even the fact that, you know, there in Revelation I just quoted, it's, it's, you know, the great men, even the kings of the earth, hide themselves in the mountains and in the clefts of the rock. Every single nation of substance in the world has built a fortified underground dwelling for the leaders of their nation. We, we have built massive fortress, you know, in the mountains. You know, I don't know if you've seen any of the documentaries on that. You know, a complete 
you know, concrete tube that, you know, is suspended on its own shock-absorbing system, is capable of sustaining life inside it for years, isolated from the rest of it. They have, they have mining and drilling rigs in, in hours to, to get themselves out if the mountain collapses upon them and they're buried inside it. It's, it's absolutely absurd. You read the judgments that are going to come, and it's as though the world has literally prepared itself for that day. That's the sort of thing that should make us laugh and smirk because we're on the winning team. You know, you know when, when, when you are watching the opposing team put all of its defenses together and they are, you can literally recognize, oh, they're lining themselves up exactly according to our offense. You know, their defense understands how we function and is preparing itself. Preparing itself. That's exactly what the, the people of Earth are doing. Unconsciously preparing themselves for what the Lord has predicted in His Word is going to come upon the whole Earth. How strange. You know, if, if that's the case... Why not just surrender? <laughs> Why not just bow your knee right now? You know, when you read, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. So much better to just do that right now. Why, why wait to do it until you're forced into submission? Isn't that crazy to watch? Like, you know, like Cops or one of those programs. And you just know how the chase scene's going to turn out, you know. You're currently being pursued by 50 cruisers and, you know, you're missing your front left wheel and sparks are flying and you've got no hope and just, why not just pull over? You know what I'm saying? Just, are you in the middle of a phone call? You've just really got to finish before you pull over. What are you doing? Why, why is the world so, because they are that rebellious. You know, the valiant ones shall cry outside. There are a couple interpretations of this. Um, one I think is a little more confusing, but quite possible. They're valiant ones. The Hebrew word translated valiant ones appears only this one time in the Bible. It is nowhere else in all of the scripture. And there are many uh, passages that, uh, you know, a description of valiant warriors, even valiant enemies are described. This is a very uh, unique uh, word, ear lamb, is you know pronounced here. It seems that it's possible. It's, it's a difficult thing to translate, but there are actually scholars that think it's possibly the name, the name of the angel who goes through the camp and wipes out the enemies of God, and. What's being related is the idea, perhaps, of his brokenheartedness over the mass amount of death that just took place when this army could have just repented. They could have just You know, think about this. If these people truly are in rebellion, enemies of God, and this is their moment of death, this one angel is responsible for sending 185,000 people to hell. I would not want to be the person, <clears throat> the being responsible for ever sending one person to an eternity separated from God. It's, it's possible that that's what's being said. You know, the, the idea of the mourning and the languishing. Uh, that paints quite a picture in the mind. That, that while you look at this and you see God's great judgment, there's a great mourning in the process of it. God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. The scripture tells us that repeatedly. Yeah, it's, it's not like, oh, these guys have been waiting for it. Here it comes, and I'm just so happy to finally get rid of these guys, right? Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh and preach to them. Why? Because he knows the people of Nineveh might repent. Okay. He's a wicked man who wants to see those people punished. That final conversation about the judgment, God says, 
you're more concerned about your shade tree dying and the fact that you're now getting a sunburn on your bald head than you are the fact that there are more than 100,000, 180,000 children in that city who don't, they're so young they don't know their left hand from their right. God's heart is always compassion. His heart is always mourning over the death of the wicked. We hear the, the New Testament telling, you know, God is patient. You know, why? Because he, he wants everyone to repent. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's why, that's why it goes, you know, people say that. They see the wickedness of the world, and when they recognize they go, why? Why does God let this go on? Because he wants people to repent. He wants people to surrender themselves to him. So it's quite possibly a description of how this angel and then all of the nations you know, listed, Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan, Carmel, they're heartbroken over the idea that God is so mighty, he just has to send one angel and he creates this much destruction in the process. That, that, that causes people to consider themselves. You know, I'm, we hear a lot of argument against capital punishment. Oh, it's so cruel. It's cruel and unusual. It's inhumane. How could we, how could we put people to death for the things they do? Look at the nations that do. Their crime rates are incredibly low. You know, when they, you know, and especially the ones that do it in a just fashion, okay, there are nations that sort of have like street justice. You know, all you got to do is yell thief and point at somebody and a mob will gather and beat that person to death, right? I mean, you can just carry out a killing that way. You know, somebody hasn't actually committed a crime, just start yelling thief and the mob will kill someone for you. That's unjust. Nations that actually go through a process of investigating and then trying and then convicting and then executing, you know, I, I hate to hold Iran up as an example, but, you know, rape in Iran, they put people to death for that, right? In America, a woman is sexually assaulted Every uh, 90 seconds, every minute and a half, a woman is sexually assaulted in America. That is ridiculous. That is so evil. You know how many rapes there were in Iran last year? 11. 11. Because they put them to death quickly. They confirmed. Did it really happen? Is this some false accusation? Was it a legitimate thing? Was there some kind of thing and now she's in trouble in crying rape? Well, they deal with that differently. But if they confirm, no, this is a confirmed rape, he's put to death right there, done. Quick as that, it's over. That, that'll cause rapists to really think through, you know what I'm saying? Regardless of what amount of lust might be in their heart, death's on the other side of it. 185,000 Assyrians just got wiped out by one angel, Lebanon. Sharon, Bashan, Carmel, they're all shaking. You know, they, they shake off their fruit. Literally, the, the nerves are jangled so bad that the beauty and the fruitfulness of their nation is rocked to the core over, oh my goodness, we've behaved like Assyria to a certain degree. Maybe that level of punishment is coming for us. That's a good thing now. Even that type of fear of the Lord, not just a reverential worship and respect, but the idea that there is judgment at the hand of God. That'll cause people, I think, you know, oh, I don't, you hear that, I don't like, you know, ram Christianity down my throat, you know, that preacher's old hellfire and brimstone, I don't care for that. I think the world needs more hellfire and brimstone sermons. I really do. The fear needs to be in my heart. If it needs to be in my heart, I think it needs to be in your hearts and the world. To tremble at the coming day. Now I will rise, verse 10 says, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. <clears throat> you, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, you shall conceive chaff and you shall bring forth stubble. <clears throat> your breath as fire. 
shall devour you. The people shall be like the burning of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. Hear you who are afar off. What I have done, you are near. Acknowledge my might. He gives these examples of things that burn very easily and very suddenly. You know, this idea of chaff and stubble, you know, breath is fire, shall devour burnings of lime. Now, uh, the, the chemistry of lime is interesting. You know, the, the, the actual uh, you know, lime soda, uh, the powder, water will cause it to burst to flames. So, you know, the volatility is what he's describing. Chaff, you know, when they would take the um, wheat and uh, either uh, roll the uh, sledged wheel over it, breaking the kernels of wheat out of the wheat stalk, or they would pound it with rods and um, break the uh, wheat free of the, you know, uh, like hay stalk that it had grown on. There's a fine skin on each one of the wheat kernels, sort of like uh, onion skin, really, really delicate and light. And then, of course, all of the hay. Um, they usually did this on hilltops where they would bring all of the sheaves there and pound the wheat out of the stalks. And when they were done, it's all sort of mixed together. So if there was a good wind, that was the easiest way. If not, they had these big uh, fans that they had woven out of reeds that they would hold and they would just billows them as you took a winnowing fork and would throw the wheat and the chaff up in the air. And that you know, wind or the, the fans moving the air would blow the chaff off to the side and the heavy kernels would fall straight down. When they were done... They would gather and bag the, the, the wheat kernels. Now you get this big mound of chaff, all of that skin off the, the husks and you know, all of the hay-like stubble, and they would start a fire. And then they would just take the, the winnowing forks that they had thrown the wheat up in the air with, and they would just throw it, and it would literally be just bursting into flame in the air. You could burn up chaff. That was like the shortest uh, portion of the work in everything that you had to do because chaff just burned so easily it would ignite a flame and you when you're stirring it up like that it just roars to life and in no time the chaff's gone you know god is saying you know like the stubble like the chaff like just spilling water on caustic soda it just bursts to flame that's that's what you've become he's saying you become a thing that's just going to roar into fiery judgment Think about that. If that's, you know, that's not us. If we've surrendered our lives to Christ, if he is in fact our Lord, we don't have any fearful and trepidation about his appearance and his coming. For the people that live in rebellion to him, that's what they have to look forward to. The day where it's all just going to roar to flame and be gone. No thanks. I don't want to experience that at all. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, speaking of Jesus in his coming judgment, his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. A serious statement that is being said. 33.14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. You'd think so after you've read that. You know what I'm saying? This is what lies ahead for you. And after the judgment of the Assyrians, there was a great repentance. You know, when there's a military victory, the people sort of have a sense of, you know, well, we did it with God's help. When God says, just take a seat, watch what's about to happen. You're going to get up tomorrow, and the army you see before you will be no more. And you wake up, and they're all dead corpses. That gives you an entirely different impression of God. That makes it such that you don't want to deal with him. I've shared this example before. My oldest daughter, Christian, years ago, we were trying to get ready for bed, and her younger sister, our middle daughter, Rebecca, were going at one another. 
And in the midst of their being too rough with one another, Rebecca, the middle daughter, got hurt pretty good. And Christian, the oldest daughter, in teenage fashion, is now looming over her younger hurt sister and laughing maniacally about her injuries. And it was not especially evil. It was just typical teenage stupidity. And I'm saying to my oldest daughter, as I'm tending to the younger one who's hurt, you don't want to behave like that. Because the day is going to come where you're hurt, and you're going to want and need people's sympathies. And I understand you were horsing around, and she sort of deserved what she got, but you reap what you sow. Don't do this. And she didn't stop. And I said, it's coming. I guarantee you it's coming. And it wasn't even a full hour later, and we were in bed. The whole house has just gone to bed. And my daughter Christian came into our bedroom, which there was a bathroom actually across the hall for them, but they liked to come into our room and use our bathroom. And we had said over and over again, please don't do that. Well, she rushes through our bedroom and makes the explanation as she goes it's closer and your lights on and we're trying to say don't and she does anyway and now she's in there and because she knows she's not supposed to and we've had words about this before when she finishes and she comes out to go back to her bedroom she's trying to just scurry through the bedroom and you know not have to deal with me confronting her so as she comes out i'm starting the hey haven't we talked about this and she's doing the yeah yeah i know but and i hear that bah, 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 bah of her running right into the door with her face. It's pitch black. She came through and left the door of my bedroom partially open. And because it's pitch black, she can't see. She's got her hands out in front of her, and she's trying to find the door as she scurries through the room, and she's sort of telling me off. And that door passes right between her two hands, and she just full force walks right into the end of that door. Whap! And you hear that door rattling and go bang on the floor and i flip the light on and she's howling and hanging onto her face and guess what i can only do <laughs> pour out tremendous sympathy right i want to i'm not kidding i want to with every fiber in me i want to take care of her i want to help her but she's still on the floor and she's now not only telling me why this is okay for her to have, but now she's also telling me how this is not her reaping what she's sowing about what she did to her sister earlier. Look, when God deals the blow, right? If somehow I had jumped up in that moment and delivered punishment or correction, it would have been different when God goes smack and hits you or hits your enemy. It's a very different, very different experience. There is a fear. There is a reaction in this where the people of God are like, oh, my goodness. That wasn't a military reaction on the part of Israel. It wasn't some political prowess that they pulled off. God said, you can't handle this. Just step aside. I'll deal with it. That, that should make every one of us have a very somber reaction to God, his power, and his strength. And that's where his people are right now. The ones who doubted and the ones who believed are both stepping back going, well, hey, look at that. Look at what God has done. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire, who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, I don't want that, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, I don't want to talk about or hear about or see these, shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks, 
bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. He won't have to doubt it. Their eyes will be will see, and listen to this, their eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. The hypocrites, the liars, the thieves, the unjust, they're not going to see the glory of victory, nor will they see the beauty of the king. Hezekiah, nor Jesus, right? We'll see these things afar off. If we will walk in fellowship with the Lord, this vision will ever be in our heart. We will see the wickedness of the world and it will not be our desire. What we will recognize and look forward and look for in our lives is the coming of our King. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, talking about how right now we see these things dimly as in a mirror. I've talked about that a lot, right? It's backwards. Our view of the kingdom is backwards, right? You look in the mirror, everything's opposite, right? So it is with the kingdom. You want to live? How do you do it? You die. You want to be the greatest? How do you do it? You become the least. The, the, functioning according to the kingdom, according to the vision, is backwards to the things of the world. And it's dimly, you know, our mirrors now. You ever seen that old glass where you walk in a house and it's got that like rippled effect in it? The reason it's that way is because only one side of old glass could be made flat. They would hammer out sheets and they would pour the silica melted glass into it. And that top side would level with gravity. But the underside took on the reflection of whatever it was being poured onto. And of course... The heat of melted glass would cause it to buckle and heave. And so glass, was, it was impossible to create. Blown glass, which they turned and could cut and put into window panes, or poured glass to, to have a perfection to it. Well, how they do it now is they float it on liquid tin, whether you're aware of that or not. You go to the Anderson Glass Factory, and there is a massive pool of just raging inferno glass that is floating on top of liquid tin. So both sides are perfectly flat. A mirror that he's talking about here wasn't even made of glass. It was made from metal that they hammered as flat as they could get and heat and hammer and polish and heat and hammer. And if you wanted a lady to, to know what your makeup looked like, you had to literally kind of pitch that thing around and tilt it and gain an understanding of what it looked like. You couldn't just say, you know, metal was not perfect. It was hammered out flat and polished. A mirror, right, a brass mirror was the best they could get. And you had to, like, tilt it all around and gain the idea of, okay, yep, it doesn't look too bad, or it looks really good. I've done an okay job. I don't have lipstick on my eyebrows this time. The mirror... We see the kingdom with right now is that. It's a thing that we hammer out from God's word and we gain an understanding of. It's not a perfect understanding. And it is reversed from our natural sense of things. I do want to be the greatest in the kingdom, but I've got to continue dying to myself in order to become the servant of everyone, in order to gain that. And there's a dim understanding. There will come a day, according to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, that when we see him, it'll be face to face. It'll be perfect. There'll be no reversal. There'll be no imperfections. That's the thing we long for, the day where we come. And part of that beauty we're going to see is actually something that the world would look at as ugly. The scarring of Jesus Christ. When we see that king, right? Thomas, in his resurrected form,
form had said, I won't believe until I can put my hand, my fingers in his wounds, in his hands, or in the wound at his side. And then eight days later, when Jesus is standing in front of him, he says to Thomas, do you need to put your fingers in this wound or in my side? And Thomas says, no, I, I now believe. He still bore the scars. When we read of him in Revelation, and he's the lamb upon the throne, John records it was as though he were a lamb that was slain. Listen, when you are in the presence of the Lord and you have a perfect understanding of hell and you understand, I'm not going to spend eternity there. Why? Because of the scars of the one who sits on the throne. That's going to be a beautiful thing. Those injuries will move our hearts, will bring us probably to tears. The sacrifice that was made on our behalf, we we look for currently, and we have a, a far distant view and understanding of that city and that king that is coming for us. The one who conquered this army, he's our king. He belongs to us. And we, we who are righteous, not in ourselves, right? The righteousness we bear is the, the righteousness that was lent to us by Jesus Christ. We are not the hypocrites of the world. We are not the sinners, the oppressors that we once were. We still have our fleshly struggles. We are surrendered to Christ. And as such, we have this vision in our hearts and our minds. And we long for it. We long for the fulfillment of this, to see this thing come just a little bit more. If you look at verse 20, look upon Zion, the city of our opponent, excuse me, appointed feasts, your eye, the, the, the holidays that they kept, all of the feasts that they celebrated. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. You know, they, they would set up their tents and their tabernacles to celebrate, and then they would take them down. And he's saying, no, no, the time is going to come where your tabernacle, your home, your house will be built and you'll ever be in the presence of the Lord. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, quiet home, a tabernacle that not, will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed. It's not going to be a temporary thing. It's a permanent thing, nor will any of its cords be broken, right? You've all, we've probably all had, you know, tents that we enjoyed, you know, camping. A lot of people in Maine, the Northeast, do camping. And then, you know, you haul that tent out for one more season and realize this thing is moth-eaten. It's, it it's time to throw this out. We can't use this tent this year. That's not how it's going to be for us with Jerusalem and the city of God and the eternal dwelling place. It has a permanency. There, the majestic Lord will be for us a, a place of broad rivers and streams. You know, this dry desert wilderness is going to become fruitful and watered, in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So no other country or you know, um, troop will bring their boats there to show their majesty, their strength, and their prowess. God is going to be the one who takes all the glory. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then, pray, great plunder is divided. Lame, take the prey. Now think about that. The lame, take the prey. When you've read that in Kings, it, it was the lepers. Remember that? Who, who went out to the encampment first when the Assyrian army is wiped out. It's lepers who are outside the city. Everyone else is inside the city protecting themselves. And they go out to the camp and find everybody dead. And they start like packing their backpacks full of goods and wares. And they come to the conclusion of, hey, we've got to tell the people in the city because they're eventually going to find out. And they're going to find out we were here and didn't tell them. So the lame are the ones who take the prey and find it and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be uh, forgiven their iniquity. The people inside the city of Jerusalem you know, will eventually find their salvation in the Lord. You know, Currently, presently, in this geography and time and ancient history, and also those whose hearts 
are fixed upon the Lord and waiting for his deliverance and his accomplishments, we are going to find our eternal dwelling place in uh, the city of Jerusalem and in, in the presence of the Lord. It's a great prophecy of um, you know the future and what it is the Lord has planned for us. The, you know, the greater overview is <clears throat> we have nothing to fear. For all that the world could throw at us, we have nothing to fear. God is our great king. He is going to judge our enemies. There's an eternity to that. And in the end, we're welcomed into his presence. Even if spiritually we're a leper, we're going to be those who partake in God's conquest, right? This is actually what's meant by we're more than conquerors. You know, preachers preach that message like, so get your sword and let's go to battle. No, we're more than conquerors. Christ is the conqueror and we're the recipients of his conquest. That's a really gracious thing. You know, the best, I think it was Dr. David Jeremiah years ago, I heard him, he was uh, using the illustration of the time of George Foreman. You know, George Foreman going to the ring, heavyweight champion of the world, come home, give the check to his wife. She's more than a conqueror. George was the conqueror. And he had, you know, she had such power over him that he would surrender his conquest to her. There's a guy I thought that was a really, you know, beautiful picture for us. We're more than conquerors in Christ. He's defeated all things before us and lends to us the spoils of his victory. It's pretty cool. So let the Lord be your victory. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for your love, for the way you work in our lives, for bringing us here this evening. I pray, Lord, that we would have heard this message and that we would surrender ourselves to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for protecting us, providing for us. Bless us, keep us, watch over us, Lord. Those of us are struggling, those of us that are sick, Lord, our family members are sick. Be the conqueror. Be the victory. Accomplish your work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.